Well, let's go ahead and start with a prayer this morning. If you don't mind, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will be with our hearts this morning and help us to open up and learn what you want us to learn from this book. And I pray that you will help me to convey your message, not mine. I pray that you'll always be with us as we go throughout our days to use your wisdom and not ours in any, any way we can. Pray through your son. Amen. <clears throat> All right, welcome, everybody. Um, quick recap of last week, as I usually do. We looked at chapter 28 of the book. Um, it's kind of an interlude of the book of Job. It doesn't seem to be Job speaking or his friends, but it's apparently the narrator kind of giving us a kind of an aside about all the stuff that, about, about wisdom, really, and um, <clears throat> about how we can't find it by looking anywhere on earth, no matter how deep we mine or how hard we look or no matter where we, where we go, it can't be found in the land of humanity in, in this reality. And only God knows where, he, where true wisdom is, and he, only, he, only he has it. And he's had it since the formation of the world. And even when, even when things are chaotic in our lives, we should know that God is functioning and running the, the universe through his wisdom. Um, and to gain wisdom ourselves, we just need to fear God. And this, the end of chapter 28 mentions that fearing God is wisdom, and... As we know in Proverbs, it says fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's both. Um, and I mentioned it may seem like a bit of a random chapter in the book of Job about this man suffering, but it's really the key to message to, of this book. Um, and, I, and we said that wisdom is not always understanding, but trusting the God who does understand. I think it's a large piece of it. So before moving on in the book... Um, Today's going to be less of a bummer. We're not going to talk about suffering so much. <clears throat> Yay. Um, I, w- I want to dig into this wisdom topic a little bit more. Uh, and this may seem like a bit of a rabbit trail at first, but stay with me. I'll bring it back to Job. Uh, so don't worry. <clears throat> so what is mankind's job on this earth as given by God? To take care of it. Okay, yeah. Uh, Genesis 1, 28, we're supposed to rule over this earth and take care of it and be its kind of co-regents with God, sort of, to, to rule over this planet. So, is a caretaker and ruler of the earth a job which requires wisdom? Yes. It's not a hard question. <laughs> um, it's not one of those Bible class trick questions. Uh, it's definitely a job that requires a lot of wisdom to do well. I mean, there are a million decisions that make to make that will affect all of creation, um, and that necessitates a godly wisdom to do well. I mean, we can do it lots of different ways, but to do it well takes godly wisdom. So the first job that mankind is given is something for which we need a lot of wisdom. Um, and one could argue that practically everything else that God asks us to do stems from that one assignment, but then that's, that's a whole different class. Suffice it to say, we need wisdom for all that we do on this earth. 
And if we want to do it well and to please God, wisdom is key. So the big question for us as humans is, what is your baseline or your definition for wisdom? And where does your wisdom come from? Which is what the last chapter, chapter 28, is kind of all about. Where does your wisdom come from? And at the most basic level, we, we, maybe we don't even think about it, but we think of the most basic way to gain wisdom or to live a wise life is to follow a list of rules. Because if, if I have a list of rules that tells me everything that I should or shouldn't do, then I'm going to live a life that is wise, that is the way God wants me to live. And sometimes the emphasis on the many laws of the Old Testament and the importance of them, which they were, it gives us the idea that we can have godly wisdom if we just follow enough, if we have enough grit to follow all these laws. And that's kind of a comforting thought because if you think about it, if I do that, then I don't have to worry about thinking through things myself. Then there's no doubt that what I'm doing is the right thing. Um, I was listening to podcasts and they were joking about this and how it would be nice if there was an app that like everything that you did, say, which one should I do? Should I turn left or right? Should I say yes or no? Or all that stuff. It'd be nice. It'd be, it'd be like, I just turn my brain off, which I do mostly with my phone. <laughs> I joke about it being my brain because I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow until I look at the phone. Um, but it's more than just following a list of rules, if godly wisdom is. Because God wants humans to actually be wise. He doesn't want us to just follow a list of rules blindly or do it for the wrong reason. He wants us to mature and grow into godlike wisdom so that our decisions mirror his decisions and that our will our wills are aligned with his. So it's just like the, the analogy of parents and kids, I just keep coming back to that every time we come to how God handles us. I want my kids to be able to function without me. I think we all do. Because we all know that one day, they're going to have to function without you. And, and there's no choice around it. And so we, we can't be there to decide everything for them. And, that, and if we were, that would stunt their growth. So God gave us the wisdom books in the Bible, right? What are the wisdom books in the Old Testament? This is not a hard question either. I'm not, not a trick question. Proverbs? Ecclesiastes? Some, uh, Job, thank you. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are traditionally the what we call the wisdom books. Proverbs is kind of like, here's how to live your life in a wise way. If you do these things, if, if you live like this, things will go well for you, and you'll be pleasing to God. Ecclesiastes says, that's nice, but no matter how you live your life, sometimes things are going to go horribly wrong. And that's just how things are in this messed up world. But God is still there. And Job is kind of saying, here's an example of someone who, lives, who lived a Proverbs-like life, but got an Ecclesiastes result. And, and kind of what, ha- what God has to say about it. Um, and there are, there are fantastic books that we can get so much wisdom from. But I think by calling them the wisdom books, we tend to stop there and not think that we can get a wisdom elsewhere. 
And what I recently learned is that this classification of these three, wis- three of those wisdom books is kind of a new concept. It was first proposed in 1851 by this German scholar. Um, and his interest, it's interesting because in the mind of the Jewish people, wisdom books are the entirety of Scripture, is wisdom literature. It's not just these three books. It's the entire Old Testament is considered a wisdom literature. And kind of going back to Psalm 119, it talks about how all the words of God grant wisdom, all of them, and help you live a wise life. So it's not just these books, it's everything, it's the whole Bible, is a way to gain wisdom. Um, Because wisdom as defined through the Bible is basically knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's the ability to make correct choices based on that. And so what's another way to say knowing the difference between right and wrong? Knowing the difference between good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Okay. Where's it from? Genesis 1, right. Or 2. Um... So in, remember in the garden there were two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, the tree of life which Adam and Eve were free to eat from and the tree of knowledge of good and evil which they were forbidden to take from. Because um, this, this whole idea of wisdom is, is, is throughout the entire Bible because it's rooted in the very first story of the Bible with humanity involved. Um, because it, it was eating from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that caused them to be kicked out of the garden, and that was the fall of man that we, we hear so much about. And to be honest, this story always confused me on some level, because knowledge of good and evil seems like a good thing, right? I want to have that. I, I would think that God would want us to have the knowledge of good and evil. But when they got it, they were kicked out of the garden. And it never made sense to me because I, clearly they, were, they disobeyed God, so they shouldn't do what he says don't do. But why did he say don't get this thing? Um, and I, I recently heard something on, on it's one of these Bible Project podcasts. It helped make sense of this a lot for me, kind of pulled some stuff together. So going back to the translation of this knowledge of good and evil, it's an accurate translation, knowledge of good and evil. The, the, the Hebrew words are ra, tov and ra. And ra means evil. Um, but the, I think a, a better translation for English, interestingly in, in German, the, the translation is gut and böse. And böse kind of is, has this idea of evil, but it's also just not, not a desirable thing. And so really a better way to, for us, in our modern English, to translate this is a tree of knowledge of good and bad. Because bad, evil has this connotation of a moral component, like that is morally wrong. But bad has a kind of, is evil or something that's just not good, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so it's like, that is a bad cup of coffee, Okay. It's not a moral issue. It's close, but it's it's technically not a moral issue. Or that is a bad apple. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about the coffee in, here at church. I'm talking about that. 
but so there are a lot of things that are bad, and the the term in in raw in the Bible is even like I think it's Jeremiah talks about some bad figs that were so bad he couldn't eat them. They're not evil; they're just they're spoiled, so but they're bad, and that's what raw this word bad means. It could it could mean that way that. Or it could mean, a, like, if we say a bad person, in English it works the same way. A bad person, that has a moral implication of them being an evil person. And so, if we look at this as the knowledge of good and bad, it kind of expands the definition of what this tree was giving to Adam and Eve. Um, and I think knowing the difference between good and bad is honestly a good definition of wisdom. Because if you look at the, the things we're taught in Proverbs... It's not just about avoiding evil. Sometimes it's like how to avoid bad investment decisions or with how to avoid your friend getting mad at you. So it's not only moral things that, that wisdom is involved with. So I think that, honestly, looking at this whole thing, I would be comfortable translating this the, the tree of wisdom. You have the tree of life and the tree of wisdom. And since Adam and Eve were given the job of ruling over the earth by God, he was, he was not trying to keep them from wisdom. He wanted them to have wisdom, but he wanted them to get their wisdom through submitting to him, not by taking it for themselves. I think that that's what this story gets to. Because they took it for themselves, thinking that it would be better if they got it on their terms and they figured it out themselves versus letting God guide them and getting their direction from him. And the same thing goes with us in our life. So this story of knowing the tree of knowing good and bad, or the tree of wisdom, to me shows us that there's a lot, there are two ways of gaining the concept of what it was right and wrong. There, either by taking it via your own wisdom and trying to figure it out yourself, which is exactly what is, throughout the scriptures, it says they did what was right in their own eyes. That, that is doing things that are based on your own wisdom. Or we can, we can do it that way, or we can submit to God and fear God, and following his direction, doing what he says, even when it doesn't always make sense to us, but that leads us to true wisdom and life. See, the, Adam and Eve could only eat from one tree, they had to pick. Am I going to treat, eat from the tree that is godly wisdom, which leads to life, which is what the tree of life represents? Or am I going to eat from the tree of wisdom, which is what represent, is representing my wisdom, taking it for myself and doing what I think is right? And they did what was right in their own eyes. And they decided that gaining their own idea of wisdom was more important than fearing God submitting to him and their own wisdom won out. And so our choice is always life through God's wisdom or death through our own wisdom. And so what do you think this all has to do with the book of Job? Any guesses? This is a trick question. Job's friends have their own wisdom? Absolutely. Because... And I think it's a big part of it, and I'll get to that in a second. And what this really comes down to, I'm not going to just sit here and be silent the whole time. When real suffering comes into your life, because it will, or you're going to observe people who have real suffering in their life, 
real difficulties, you're going to react. There will be some reaction from you. And good or bad, it, you're going to react somehow. And where, you're, where, you're, where does your mind go when you're basing that reaction on human wisdom? It's unfair. How, how, do you tend to, how do people tend to perceive God when they base their reaction to suffering on human wisdom? How do they see God? Unjust. Unjust. Mean. Vindictive. Huh? Distant. Distant. Yeah. Uncaring. What? Yeah, and, and yeah, that's you're right. That's what God seemed to be when Adam and Eve took their own, took it for themselves. He, he distanced himself from them. That's a good point. Yeah, well, when you when you base your your reality on human wisdom, you're going to react to things, thinking that you have it right. You have you have knowledge of what's right and wrong, and God did something wrong. And so God is bad. But where, where, do you, where does your mind go when you're basing your reaction on God's wisdom? It goes toward him instead of away. Yeah, toward him. Hopefully knowing that God is in control. And kind of like I said a couple slides ago, God isn't, I don't understand this, but I trust that God knows what's going on, and God knows how to handle this on an eternal scale. Because another thing is when, when, we, when we pick from the, the tree of wisdom, the tree of knowing good and evil, and our, our own wisdom, we tend to think that the things that are happening are, it's all about me. But when we realize that from the tree of life, from God's wisdom, we see that there's a bigger perspective than just me. There's an eternal thing going on here. It's not just 2020, like the year. It's, it's, it's something much, much bigger and much more. So, it, yeah. Let me, let me give you a real example. I want to share this with everybody. Uh, Cindy and I have some very good friends live down in Louisiana. His name's Jimmy. Her name's Keitha. They were up here last fall visiting, came to church with us. Very interesting history. They both were formally married. He lost his wife. She lost her husband to cancer and her teenage son in an auto accident within two weeks of each other. Wow. They got married, you know, they were meant for each other. Uh, They just retired. Um, She got feeling bad, uh, went to the hospital. They sent her over to Houston MD Anderson, which is a big cancer center, She's got pancreatitis and uh, liver cancer. They've given her days, if not weeks, to live. We've been talking back and forth, and here's here's uh, a text he sent me. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. Keith and I both know that his way is perfect. We may not always understand. Both our faith and trust will never waver. He is still on the throne. Keith will just get to witness it before we do. To me, that's wisdom. That's godly wisdom. Doesn't understand why this is happening, why his life throwing this at him, but he trusts in God, and he knows 
you know, there's something greater waiting for us. And that's, that's the kind of wisdom I think God would like us all to be able to obtain. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's not easy. Not easy at no. all. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do spend a lot of time trying to, to figure God out. And I don't think that's a bad thing, necessarily. I think it's good to try to understand God and try to figure out who... Right, but I, there comes a point where we're not going to understand God. His ways are way far beyond ours. And I think that it's important that we humble ourselves enough to realize that. Uh, I think he's given us a lot of curiosity and drive to figure things out because I think the better I figure him out, the better I can be like him. But, and and that's, that's kind of hard sometimes to know when to stop pushing and stop banging your head against the Bible to try to figure something out and when to submit and to this godly wisdom idea. Yeah, David. Uh, you know, the tree of life makes a reappearance in the very last chapter of the book. Are you going here? No, I'm not. Yeah. And, and we're in this last chapter of this incredible celebration of the saints living in the presence of God by the river of life, which the tree of life grows on both sides. It produces its fruit in all 12 months of the year. It never dies. And it says, uh, uh, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. And my only point about that is the tree of good and evil is gone. Mm-hmm. Because in Yeah. These understanding or figuring out of God, I think, because of the tree of life. It's a metaphor, obviously. It's not a real tree with real fruit, with real fruit, but it'll be. That's when we get to know everything, you know. And that's a kind of a cliche in the church, but I think it's supported by you know this chapter about you know the tree of life now is we're we're just being summoned, you know, and so that doesn't help us that much in the now, but. Yeah, that's a good point. If I try to sum that up, that when we are in heaven, according to the last part of Revelation, when we have access to this tree of life, we don't have to worry about wisdom anymore because we are eating straight from the source of true wisdom, which gives us life, which is God. And we will understand all by and by, right? Um, yeah, and in the book of Job... Um, the arguments that you hear for most of the book are from, from Job and even from his friends especially, but also from Job, are based on the wisdom in the eyes of men. Because they, they've looked at the world and they think they've figured out how God works, this retribution principle I keep talking about. They think that they know that if you're bad, God's going to make bad things happen in your life, and if you're good, God's going to make good things happen in your life. And... 
they're processing through the, everything through that lens of their own wisdom. And, the, and his friends are so sure of their wisdom that they accuse Job of sins he's not guilty of and destroy their relationship with him. Yeah, just to make sense of it. And Job is so sure of his wisdom that he accuses God of being unjust, which is pretty bold. But truism, as we've seen in chapter 28 last week, is based on in fearing God, and that requires submission and trust. And ironically, that, that sometimes feels less secure. Because if I have... Or when I judge things or judge God based on my wisdom, then I have an answer, and I have something to hold on to. I have, I have a, a judgment. God is wrong. God is evil. God is distant. But when I decide to trust in God's wisdom, I may never get an answer. I may, I may never get an answer to what's, why this is happening to me. If I assume it's on my wisdom, I'm... Oh, the answer is because God's a jerk. But if I trust God, I may not have an answer ever in my life. So that's all I had to say about that. Yeah. I think that one of the beautiful things about wisdom, God's wisdom and godly wisdom, is that you know, he says over and over that he will shelter us under his wings and under his blanket and how he will, he, he's a safe but when we are so concerned with our wisdom, we can't accept that. We can't, we can't be sheltered and comforted by him. And that's the beautiful place to try to reach. If you can reach that, you can, you can have a lot more peace than you ever dreamed. Yeah, being sheltered and given peace by God requires submission and trust that he's going to do that for you. If you're so concerned and wrapped up in your mind about trying to figure out things for yourself and judging God based on your own wisdom, then you're going to miss out on a lot of things. And this is, this is easy to say. This is hard to do, especially when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, David. Yeah, the suffering is part of it. We have to wail at God a little bit, and we have to ask him questions, and we have to not understand him. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the path is always 100%. Yeah, I know seeing God's wisdom, because sometimes people fall away. Right. But I almost feel like it's a part of the design to struggle and to ask questions and to suffer to come through to this point of peace or, or wisdom or acceptance even. Yeah, I think that's absolutely. I think struggling is part of the growth and becoming who God wants us to be. It's the analogy of like lifting weights. You don't get stronger by just laying on in, in the bed all day long and being comfortable. You have to lift weights and tear up those muscles a bit so they grow up, grow back bigger. Yeah, Kathy. Just to add, kind of 
Yeah, isn't it one who struggles? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think wrestling and struggling with God is definitely a, just a core piece of having a relationship with God. I mean, anybody in here who has a close relationship with another person, you're going to struggle with them. Uh, I had a professor in college at one time that said that he doesn't call anybody a friend until he's had a really good fight with them, <laughs> at least once. And I, I kind of get that, um, because sometimes you have a fight with somebody and you're like, Never want to talk to that person again. And you don't. Then, the, the, so when you struggle, sometimes you work around things and you understand that person better than you did before. And you know, you know how that goes. So, moving on through the book of Job a little bit, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on chapter 30 and 31. It's kind of Job's final plea to God. It's not really anything terribly new than what he's already said. He continues to be sad and distraught about what's going on, and he also continues to be angry with God for treating him poorly. He, he says in chapter 30, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know that you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Once again, this struggle this fighting. He's, he's not happy. And he also continues to beg God for an audience to prove his case. He says, I've walked, if, if I have walked with falsehood or my foot is hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in the honest scales and he will know that I'm blameless. And the, one of the last things he says is, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I'd put it on like a crown. And then after, after Job's final plea to God, Elihu comes along. Elihu has, has, he's a new character that just kind of shows up out of nowhere. And he sees that Job's three friends have remained silent, unable to answer him. And Elihu takes their place in ripping into Job. Um, and he's very long-winded. <laughs> he talks for six full chapters. And he's very angry. And he's very sure of himself. We'll get to you in a second. So it says in the beginning of chapter 32, So these three men stopped answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends, because they had found no way to refute Job, and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So he's angry at Job, he's angry at the, at the friends. I think we're all angry at the friends, but we're not so much angry at Job. So who is this guy? Why is he in the book? Um, well, I mentioned last week that the other, a couple weeks ago, that the, I see the other friends as representing kind of 
the best philosophical and religious minds of the day for the, around Israel. This guy seems to be possibly representing kind of a more theologically sophisticated and nuanced approach that may have been more of the Israelite view of things. Uh, His name, Elihu, is the only Hebrew-sounding name in the book. Like, the other guys are clearly not Israelites, but he may have been sort of intended to sound like a bit of an Israelite. His his name means, he is my God. Um, And his role in this book is the defender of God's justice. And he's pretty confident about his ability to do so, ridiculously confident, actually. He says to Joe, bear, this is halfway through his speech, he says, bear with me a little longer and I'll show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. <laughs> oh, really? Well, good to know. And he's, it, that's not the only place he says things like that, but he's, he's pretty confident that he is the perfect man. Um... It's kind of the guy you want to invite to a party, right? So he, d- he does some say good things. He says a lot of good things, actually, in, in, in his speeches. He, like, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? I mean, he, he, he does stand up for God. Because the friends have been beating on Job, and Job has been beating on God, really. And so he's there to show us, in a lot of ways, that Job needs to turn it down a little bit, because Job is acting pretty self-righteous. I mean, he, he is blameless, but he's willing to say, I am more blameless than God, which is a dangerous place to go. Even if you are, you don't say that you're better than God, basically. Um, and he is right about some things and wrong about some things. Like, like I mentioned, he's right about Job being right, self-righteous. But he's wrong about Job's motivations. He still thinks that Job is in it for the prosperity, but that's not the case. He's in it because he loves God and wants to serve God. And he's right about God not answering to us and that God is without fault. But he's wrong that God adheres to this retribution principle because Elihu is very sure of that. He goes on about how God always punishes the, the wicked in this life and makes their... Their life's difficult. But he has, he has a, a very interesting take on this whole retribution principle idea, kind of as retribution principle 2.0. Um, he fully agrees with everyone else in the book that God is just and good and that he runs according, things according to that principle. But he tweaks the retribution principle to allow for someone to be currently blameless but to be punished for something that might happen that, or that, they, that God will, knows that will have, so like pre-punishment, in order to teach people. Like, uh, like this, this section where he says, who's a teacher like him? He's kind of, and this is in the section he's explaining how God is such a good teacher that he can punish you before you even do the thing to keep you from doing the thing. Well, it, I didn't say it was right. Or that it really follows logic necessarily, but um, and he even talked about that's why some people that's why you have bad dreams because God's trying to keep you from doing something wrong. Um, 
and I, I just thought that was a really interesting approach because he doesn't he, he does say that Job is wrong for being self righteous, but he doesn't go on and accusing Job about sins that he's created, committed. He's like, but you might like rape and pillage and do horrible things in the future, so God's trying to punish you now for that. Uh, anybody, anybody have any thoughts on that? It's kind of it's still a retribution. Right, it's still retribution for something you're going to do as opposed to what you did. Right, it's still it's still a retribution principle. Yeah. Do you think that that is kind of the idea that Jewish people at the time or Israelites at the time had? You know, their religious. I'm not sure if that's what they thought at the time. It's what some people thought at the time, clearly, but I'm not sure who. Right, he does kind of lead into God. And then in the very last chapter of Job, um, God condemns the three friends and makes them offer sacrifices for their treatment of Job. But Elihu is not mentioned. He's not in trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder if the general message, because we're, we're clearly bringing in a new character, and right when he finishes speaking, God kind of picks up the baton and starts talking because he answered Job. Yep. Yeah, and there, there's lots of different opinions on Elihu's speech. Um, he, he does, it, you're right, he does kind of lead into what God says. He, he says some of the things, he's like, now, Job, don't you realize that God's in charge of all this stuff? And so it's much more balanced. It's not like, you're wrong, Job. But he, he does really, he, throughout what he says, I mean, he says a lot in six chapters, but throughout what he says, he, he does kind of harp on the, the retribution principle idea and how... This is how God works all the time, even though it's clear that He doesn't. Um, so, but He—it's like as He's talking, it's—it's it's almost hard to t- to tell when He stops and when God starts, because as He gets near the end of what He says, He starts leading into like how powerful God is, and and it's, which leads into God's response. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good point, and it's, honestly, some people—it's it's an old book, so it's hard to tell what happened when. Some people think that this whole speech by Elihu was just added later by somebody else who wanted to wanted to like interject something else into the story, and that it stopped where Job stopped and then picked up where God answered him. And you know, take that for what it's worth. But um, it it does seem a, a bit of out of character because he's not in the in the book at all before. Um, but uh, to close out here, we now have in this triangle that I keep bringing us back to. Uh, we have kind of a defender for each one of these corners of the triangle. We have um, Job defending his own righteousness and the retribution principle at the expense of saying God's unjust. And that we have the three friends saying that God's just and retribution principle stands and God is not good. And then Elihu comes up with the 2.0 of the retribution principle also saying that God that Job is unjust in some way. 
But they're ultimately, all of them are wrong. They're all missing something big. And that is what we will get into next week, because we'll get into what God has to say for himself, which is always, in any argument you're having, it's always important to look at what God has to say for himself. <laughs> so that's what we're going to be looking at next week, and what he has to say is pretty, pretty awesome. So thanks for being here, everybody.